1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-6. through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Amen. You guys can be seated. Whoa. All right, since this projector is doing this janky thing, I'm going to try and move this over here. Oh, that wasn't that bad. I asked Matt on the setup team, I was like, hey, I was like, how heavy is that thing? You think I could move it by myself? He's like, I don't know, just put your like legs into it. So <laughs> good pro tip from Matt Bailey. Um, would you guys pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for um, just the gift of your word. And I pray, Lord, that as we um, work our way through these six verses, um, that you would soften our hearts to receive your word as true, as good, as, as beautiful, as desirable for our lives, um, and that you would just have your way with us, Holy Spirit, as we encounter the truth of the word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So one of the, one of the things that I think we, we don't spend nearly enough time doing is learning how to suffer well, right? Learning how to suffer well, especially when you live in the suburbs, like I'm guessing most all of us do here in, in South Orange County. Like in the suburbs, we either try to play down our suffering, right? Because well, we want to avoid vulnerability. We try to play it down like, hey, everything's good, right? Or we try to pretend it away. When suffering comes, it's like, hey, let's, let's pretend it away. Let's, let's, uh, let's flirt with escapism. We'll pretend it away by um, uh, flirting with, with, with alcohol or with, with Netflix, right? Just, just busying our minds to pretend that the suffering isn't really there. Or sometimes, depending on your personality, we actually glory in it. Where we glory in our sufferings, we sort of bathe ourselves in pity and close ourselves off to the world. None of those are viable options for the Christian. The Bible tells us that for the Christian, the cross of Jesus Christ changes everything about our relationship with suffering. It's actually the cross itself the very symbol and pinnacle of our faith changes how we relate to suffering. And so letting the cross shape your suffering is one of, I think, the most practical things that we could ever learn. Makes a huge difference in the way that you live your life, the way that you relate to your family, your friends, your witness to the world. All of those things will be affected by... Uh, the way that you let the cross shape 
your suffering. I think one of the most important lessons is for us to learn what, what to do and what not to do when we suffer as it relates to our faith. Jesus, he said, pick up your cross and follow me. And when he said that, he meant that he's going to suffer by picking up his cross, but also that in a very real sense, we're going to have to suffer too. So the question for the Christian is not if we will suffer, but when we do, how are we going to suffer well? How are we going to suffer in light of the gospel? How are we going to let the cross shape our suffering? And in many ways, the, the entire book of 1 Peter is like all about that, right? That's why we're calling this series Resilient Hope in Our Restless World. Because we experience restlessness and suffering. And we, we, we struggle sometimes. We feel this tension with how can we live with hope in the midst of that? And so for our text this morning, we're going to see specifically, though, how the cross uniquely shapes the way that we suffer. Last time we were in the book of First Peter, uh, we talked about chapter 3, verse 18, where it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And now, just a few verses later, in chapter 4, verse 1, Peter says, Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh... Since that happened, since Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, since he suffered in the flesh, now arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And so in other words, Peter's goal is not just to point our eyes to the cross like he did in chapter 3, but here in chapter 4, he wants to let the cross shape how they live their lives. Let the cross be a model for our lives. That it's, the cross of Jesus is not just a picture and a symbol of this important historical event for us, but that it actually should shape how we live our lives. And we see the way that the, the cross is a model for our lives first, point number one, and how we remember the power of Christ's victory in our suffering. Remember the power of Christ's victory. Uh, read verse 1 again with me. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, now arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now what this verse reveals to us is that Jesus, he suffered. Right? He suffered to the point of going to the cross. And to the outside world, that looks like Jesus is not in control. Right? When Jesus went to the to, to suffered to the point of the cross, to the outside world, to all of his critics, to all of his naysayers and haters, to all of them, he looked like uh, he was on the losing end, right? That's why they were like mocking him and spitting at him and saying, hey, look, if you're really the son of God, if you're really who you say you are, then why don't you come down and prove it, right? It looked like he was on the losing side. It looked like his enemies were winning. It looked like Jesus was losing and that the bad guys were winning. But then you remember, then you remember the promise of new life, right? If you were just to look at Jesus suffering on the cross and just leave it there, then man, it does not look like good news, right? 
looks like all is lost. When we zoom out and we realize what his suffering accomplished, when he stood there in our place for our sins, and the victory that he secured through his resurrection, when you do that, then you remember the promise of new life. And in the same way, many of us, many of you are in the middle of suffering. And that suffering might actually be happening because you're following God's will. Like what happened to Jesus? Or like what was happening to Peter's audience when they received this letter from him. They were suffering for following God's will. Like maybe you're the kind of person where your faith is on display and you're getting mocked because of it. Or maybe you're in this place where you're like you're refusing to take shortcuts in your business or your work and you're suffering financially because of it. It's actually because you're following God's will that you're experiencing different forms of suffering. And so what you need to remember in moments like that is the victory of Christ. That in the same way that the cross is not the last chapter in Jesus' story, your suffering is not the last chapter in yours. Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with that way of thinking. You know that Christ suffered in the flesh and his suffering led to victory. And so arm yourself with that same purpose. Arm yourself to be willing to suffer in the flesh, knowing that that produces victory on the other side. Now, there's something to be said here about the phrase, arm yourself. Arm yourself. Peter's using a Greek word there, hoplizo. It's the only time that this is used in the New Testament. And it's a word that was actually commonly used in first century Greek writing uh, to, to describe like when one would prepare for battle, right? So when you prepare for battle, you, you, you take up arms, you, you arm yourself to get ready for that battle. The key word there is prepare. This is something that you do to prepare yourself for battle. And so the idea is, look, if you want to respond to suffering the way that Jesus did, then now is the time to arm yourself with the same attitude he had. You might not be going through suffering right now. Maybe you are. And if, if you are, man, like, man like, I'm sorry that you're going through that. But maybe you're in this place where you're like, you know, I'm not experiencing suffering right now. And so I'm kind of kind of put this, these passage, this, these verses, this passage of scripture. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this sermon, keep it in my back pocket for when I really need it. No, Peter, when he says arm yourself, he's talking about preparing yourself for suffering. That now is the time to arm yourself with the same attitude Jesus had. You don't prepare. Uh, you don't prepare for battle in the middle of conflict, do you? No, you prepare before you get into the conflict. You want to know your enemy. You want to know how to protect yourself in the midst of that conflict. You want to know how to carry on through. And so Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus had. And then he continues, in verse 1, he says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, really quick, 
This isn't saying that uh, on the one hand, it's not saying that suffering is going to make you great, right? Like it's saying that suffering um, is something like, like something great can happen in you through suffering. But he's not saying that, that, he's not promising that, right? He's not promising greatness through suffering in this particular text. He's saying that some suffering can do something great in you if you go into it prepared, if you go into it armed. And so like if you suffer thoughtlessly uh, without giving it much thought, without giving it much preparation, uh, then he says you can be done in by your sin. And so that's why he says here, whoever has suffered in the flesh, in other words, whoever has died to his old self, has ceased from sin. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't sin again, right? Like it, the Bible's teaching on that is clear. Like anytime, uh, anytime that somebody in the Bible, in the scriptures, uh, claimed to be without sin, uh, the, the writers and the authors of the scripture uh, said that you, you, know, you were clearly like off base. You were clearly nuts if you think that even as a Christian that, that you're not going to battle with sin. And so what he means there, though, when he says that whoever has suffered in the flesh, whoever has died to their old self, has seized from sin, what he's talking about is that is the way that you, he's talking about the way that we get over the power of sin in our lives. The way that we get over and, and kill sin's power over us. We do that by thinking about what Jesus did for you on the cross. And he continues now with verse two. He says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What Peter is saying is he's saying, look, like when you, when you experience suffering, your response is really just to walk down one of, one of two paths uh, when you suffer. There's a path of faith or the path of sin. And the path of faith tells us that, that there's always a level of suffering that we can experience as Christians. Remember, Jesus said that, he, he says, when you follow me, you're picking up your cross to follow me. And so the Christian life is not, is not a life that is separated from suffering. And our passage specifically is talking about the kind of suffering we go through when people mock us, or they malign us is the, the word that it uses in the ESV. Or malign us for following Jesus. And how many of you have ever been like mocked for your faith, for, for following Jesus? I mean, if you really just think about it, like even just what we believe as Christians, like as Christians, we believe that God created perfect humanity in a garden with these trees and then the fall happens. But then uh, our jacked up humanity just, just, just keeps uh, uh, getting tainted and affected by this sin. And, 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 and God loves 
God loves broken humanity so much that he came in the form of a baby through a virgin birth. He died on a cross, uh, a symbol of, of torture and execution, and he rose from the grave. And that he's right now, after rising from the grave, that he, he, he ascended onto heaven, and that right now he's preparing a home for us and is going to come back on clouds to judge all the earth. And look, if you are saved by God's grace, you're hearing that and your heart is getting moved. You're like, yes and amen. But apart from God's saving grace at work in your heart, like that sounds a little whack. Right? Like, can we be honest with that? Like, that sounds a little strange. It sounds weird. Apart from God's saving grace at work in our lives. But look, if God has done a work in you, if he saved you, regenerated you, then that is the best news ever. That changes everything. But that's not going to change the fact that people think your faith is strange. It doesn't change the mocking. It doesn't eliminate the trash talk. It doesn't change the predominant cultural views of our faith. And Peter's audience that he was writing to, they were being persecuted for their faith. They were being persecuted in a very real sense of the word. And I'm not saying like, like man, we, we feel like when we're asked to put like masks on, right, to walk into a store or to, or to come up here and worship, um, some people feel like, no, nah, man, that's like persecution. That's not the persecution. Persecution, when, when we talk about it, like in the first century context, it's like, man, lives were threatened. Lives were threatened. People were getting thrown into jail. Like it was persecution in the truest sense of that word. That's what Peter's audience was dealing with. And the fact that they wouldn't give up the faith, even when it cost them popularity, being respected by outsiders, even when it cost them those things, the fact that they wouldn't give up on their faith proved to the watching world how real and how genuine their faith really was. You see, for some of you, you choose to sacrifice what the world values in order to follow Jesus. You give your time to worship on the Lord's Day when your friends just kind of want to hang on a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon. You give up creaturely comforts like maybe that new car or that vacation home that you've wanted to save towards in order to give to the church or to those in need or those who are suffering. You use your talents, your gifts to serve God and to serve his people. Man, the temptation the temptation would be to want to serve yourself rather than to serve others. Would, your, the temptation would be to leverage all of those things in order to impress those around you rather than getting mocked by them. But refusing to serve yourself rather than others proves that your faith is genuine. Peter says, arm yourselves with the same kind of thinking that Jesus had. Like a weapon you bring into battle. When suffering comes, you take it out of its sheath and you say, you know what? Jesus also suffered in the flesh. 
And what he did, it looks like defeat, but look at him now. Look at him now. He reigns in victory. You see, having that mentality, letting the cross shape your view of your suffering is why those first century like apostles and pastors and church planners were like so unstoppable. Like you couldn't touch these guys. Like they were so unstoppable. Nothing could hold them back. They'd be told, hey, you keep doing this gospel work, we're going to stone you. We're going to hurt you. We're going to beat you. And they'd respond and say, you know what? The sufferings of the world don't compare to the glory that's going to be revealed. And then people would respond and say, like, all right, well, then we're going to kill you. And they'd respond and say, you know what? To suffer is Christ and to die is gain. And they're like, all right, you know, we're not just going to kill you. We're going to crucify you, right? We're going to execute you in front of others. And they'd respond and say, yeah, you thought that would stop Jesus, but how did that work out for you and against his movement? And so then they'd say, like, all right, well, then we're going to shut you up by throwing you in prison, putting a guard outside your door. And they're like, all right, it's great. I got some writing to catch up on anyway, right? Like no matter what they th you threw at them, they saw their suffering shaped by the cross, shaped by not only the suffering of Jesus, but the victory that he received on the other side. And in the same way that Jesus saw suffering for the will of God and for the love of others as a privilege to walk through, we can too when we let uh, the cross shape our suffering. When we're able to, to see beyond what's right in front of us, the difficulty, the trial, the suffering right in front of us, when we look beyond that to the hope on the other side, just like Jesus did, we can not only endure through our trials and suffering right now, but our suffering gets entirely rewritten. It takes on a whole other flair and story to it. This leads us into our second point. I want you to see how, how Peter also helps them remember the pool of present temptation. Number two, the pool of present temptation in the midst of suffering. Remember, we said when you suffer, there's really two paths on how you can respond. There's the, there's the path of faith, and there's the path of sin. And Peter alludes to that second path when he, he in uh, verse 3, when he says, For the time that is past uh, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, which is living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, sometimes we look at lists like that and we think, oh, hey, that doesn't describe me, right? So I'm good to go, right? Sometimes we look at lists like that, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, and we think of the people out there, right? Man, if that's your posture, if that's what you're thinking, let me just say, like, that would be a huge mistake to make. Because I think if we slow down a little bit and look at what's behind all these words, 
we can see a little bit of ourselves in most, if not all of them. That word sensuality that Peter uses, what does that mean? It means to go wherever the physical desires of your body leads you. And so if I find pleasure in food, it doesn't make a difference if I'm hungry or not, if it's good for me or not. If I, if I feel this physical urge to indulge, I'm just going to do it. If I have a desire for sex, I'm going to get it, right? I'm going to get it. Even if it could be like the secret moment, this private moment when no one else is around, like I'm going to satisfy that desire in me. If I love the attention of others, I'm going to work my way to the center of the room. I'm going to find myself in conversations putting others down, trying to control the moment so people think much of me. And so when we zoom in on that word sensuality, going wherever the physical desires of our body lead us, and we rephrase that to ask ourselves, you know, where is it in your life that you just lack self-control with your body? That you lack restraint? Could it be your relationship with food, your relationship with, with money, your, your anger, your tongue? Peter's saying, no, the Gentiles, in other words, those who are outside of the faith, they're the ones who are living in that. They're the ones who are doing that. Or what about the sins of passion? Passions. Now, now passions, when he talks about passions there, uh, he's talking about like desires that dominate you, right? Desires like, like anger, hatred, passion, to where you're so moved, your heart is so riled up that it starts to dominate your language and the way that you treat others. When we look at the word drunkenness, these are sins of addiction. Maybe ask yourself, what is it that I have, that I'm prone to be addicted to? Maybe it's a substance like alcohol or um, like drugs, prescription drugs or over-the-counter drugs. Or maybe it's something like... Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime. Orgies, sexual sins. What sexual sin entices you, right? Like, I hope no one's on like the orgy group on meetup.com here, right? But like, but like, man, most of our sins are, most of our sexual sins are, are, are secret sins, you know? What are those that entice you? Drinking parties. This, this could be rephrased to just be like social sins, right? What are the social sins that, that, that tempt you? To where you're, you're more concerned about pleasing the men and women around you than you are for pleasing God. You're more concerned about being liked and accepted by others then you are belonging to God's family. And then he lists the word lawless idolatry. And really like lawless idolatry is kind of be like the junk drawer that all the others can fit inside too. Like when you add all these other things up, 
What you have is the idol of self. That you're not serving God and acknowledging his position over your life and you're putting yourself there instead. Tell me the idol of self is not a temptation of yours. To some degree, to some form, to some fashion, we're tempted by lawless idolatry too. And so, man, when we look at lists like that, when Peter says the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, which is living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, let us not get to the end of a list like that and think, cool, I'm better than that. Let's take a moment to stop, drill in, dig down, and, and ask ourselves, like, hey, is there anything in me that struggles with the same root idolatry issues that lie below each and every one of those? You see, and this is what suffering does. Suffering puts us at where the path diverges, the path of faith and the path of sin. And suffering is a tool in the hands of a loving God that pries open our hands to help us let go of the things that we turn to for comfort, the things that we turn to for pleasure that are not God's will for us. Suffering helps us to let go of those things and to grab hold of the work of the kingdom. I want you to see how this group of people that are receiving this from Peter, they've experienced a particular kind of suffering because they were choosing the path of faith over the path of sin. In verse 4, it says, with respect to this, they, those, those people that are not of the faith, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in that same flood of debauchery and they malign you. In other words, they just talk trash on you. They make fun of you. They mock you. Jesus said when we follow him, we can expect to get criticized and hated for it. And the reason is because these people, these people who don't, who don't have the same hope that you have, like they can't understand why you wouldn't do these things the way that they do. You know why? It's because they don't have that hope. They don't have a hope that goes beyond this world. And so naturally, they're going to try and get all that they can and squeeze all that they can out of this world. Do whatever feels good. Chase that dream. Live your best life now. Do what you want. Spend on yourself. You see, if you aren't a citizen of God's kingdom, then you're going to invest all of who you are in the kingdom of the world. But if you are a citizen in God's kingdom, then you're going to live for Christ and his kingdom in all that you do. But that disturbs people. That makes people uncomfortable. It tells them that the whole basis of their life is off. And so that's why you might get criticized. That's why you might get mocked. That's why you might get the word used here in the ESV, maligned. Even 
even if you're being like super humble and nice to your neighbors, your family member, and like those unbelieving people around you, even if you're being super humble and nice about it, like your pursuit of holiness in some form will still, will still be an indictment on their way of living. And so of course they get upset that you're different. It catches them off guard. They don't know how to relate. It makes them feel uncomfortable. And like a cat that gets backed up into a corner, a lot of times your po- their posture of uncomfort like comes out and spills out in anger and hissing and mocking. The re- result is slander and ridicule. And sometimes people will keep abuse over you for your desire to follow God's will. And you'll feel that. You'll feel that tension. You'll feel that weight. And it's hard. I know it's hard. It's hard to live differently than the people around you. It's hard to be the only one that's swimming upstream. It's hard for a child to stand up for what's right against their peers. It's hard for an employee to not be part of like the inappropriate humor that he knows is wrong uh, in the workplace. It's hard to not want to be accepted and liked by the people around you. And so Peter transitions in verse 5, and he tells them, knowing, knowing that, that, they, that these, the people receiving this letter are going through difficulty because they're following God's will, knowing that they're getting mocked because of it, knowing how hard that is, Peter encourages them, number three, to remember the promise of the coming judgment. Remember the promise of coming judgment. He says in verse five, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now this is one of those verses that kind of can make us squirm sometimes because it, it, it makes us, it can feel uncomfortable. But I want you to remember that we serve a God who is good. We serve a God who is beautiful. He's right in all that he does. And he is completely and utterly holy. He's a holy God. He's the very definition, as our holy God, the very definition of all that is good, all that is true, all that is beautiful, and all that is just and right. And through the cross and resurrection, Jesus, he secured the renewal of all things when all evil would be finally defeated and his enemies would be finally silenced. And this world from that moment, from the moment of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, from that moment forward, the world is marching towards final justice. What does that mean? It means that there's going to be a day where your faith and your suffering and your obedience in the midst of trials and tribulations, your faith in the middle of the furnace will be vindicated. It'll be vindicated. There will be a day when every mocker will be silenced 
defeated and judged by Christ. And so we can live with hope knowing that our stories are not stuck in this chapter of suffering. Our suffering isn't meaningless and the Lord, he's our vindicator. So there will be moments when, when the only hope that you have is that truth right there. I know some of you in this room have been there. I've been there before too, to where you feel like you're in the season of suffering where the only hope that you have is that one day your suffering will be vindicated. The promise of the kingdom that every wrong will be dealt with and every enemy of the Lord's will be defeated, that sin and temptation will die and that goodness and truth and beauty and justice will reign forever. The promise of the kingdom changes everything for the Christian who suffers. Verse six tells us this is why. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. Now, I know that verse is kind of confusing, but here's, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. He's not saying that someone preached the gospel to people after they died and then they all got a second chance in purgatory, right? That's not what he means when he says, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That's not what that means. That would be against the whole point of this passage. What he's talking about is how the gospel of resilient hope in Jesus Christ was preached to people who are now dead. They're now dead, but they once were alive. And when they were alive, they were preached to in the midst of their suffering. And they came to faith. They clung to hope when the gospel was preached to them. And so even though they died under suffering and persecution, Peter's saying, even though they died after experiencing all this suffering, even though they died, they're as alive and well, just as alive and well as Jesus is at the right hand of, the God, of God right now. This is Peter's way of almost like confronting his readers, drawing attention to these believers who rather than choose the path of sin in suffering, chose the path of life. And even though they died, even though they died and persecuted and probably some of them, many of them lost their lives because of their faith. Peter's saying like, look, even though that happened to them, they're alive in the spirit, just as alive as God is. It's almost though Peter's saying, hey, look, do you think those saints in heaven are glad they chose to live in faith rather than in sin? Like don't, do you think that, that, don't you think that they're glad they chose to live in faith rather than in sin? I mean, the answer is kind of a, a dead giveaway. No pun intended. <laughs> of course, the answer is of course. Like, of course that they, um, of course that, that they are glad that they chose to live in faith. Like the life that we've been called to live, it makes no sense without God's eternal kingdom. 
life, to have our, the cross shape our suffering, to cling to hope when we're being mocked and ridiculed, to when we're actually suffering for, because we're following the will of God, that kind of life makes no sense without the truth of God's eternal kingdom. And so we hold on to the gospel promise that Jesus came, that he came to live this life that we could never live, a perfect life, righteous before God, that he died the death that we deserve to die in our place for our sins. And he rose from the grave in triumphant victory so that all of those who place our faith in him will be given eternal life with God forever. So look, when you're suffering, when you're being mocked, when you're struggling with temptation or being misunderstood for your faith, say to yourself, this is not all there is. This is not all there is. That truth is sure. Eternity is sure. The kingdom is coming. And I will live to see this page turn. One day, all of your mockers will have to explain to God why they behave the way they did, hating you and hating the things of the Lord. And so tell them, Tell them about the resilient hope that you have in Jesus and live with that hope on display so that they might be saved too on that day. That's what Jesus did. He prayed for his enemies when he was getting uh, dragged to the cross by them, beaten by them, ridiculed by them, beaten by them. He prayed for them. He still desired God's best for them. And so again, when we read a passage like this, our posture of heart shouldn't be, well, they deserve it, right? Those mockers, they're going to get theirs, right? No, the reason that Peter encourages that for us is so that we can have hope. And my hope and desire and prayer for us as a church family is that we would live in such a way that confronts the ways of the world and makes people want that same hope too. I rewatched a, a documentary this week called Jesus in Athens. It was produced by a friend of mine named Darren Carlson. Uh, he used to be on staff at uh, Desiring God, and I, th I think he was one of the elders at um, John Piper's church in Minneapolis. But uh, he runs this uh, ministry called Training Leaders International, where he just has a huge heart to serve uh, people um, like who just are what, what, he, what he calls... Uh, what does he call it? Like, uh, like theological uh, starvation or something like that, right? He says that there's just like all these places where people are hungry for the gospel. And there's these pastors and church planners there that aren't like well equipped to reach this area. And one of the places in his ministry, uh, training, uh, training Leaders International, that, that he would send pastors and seminary students to to train people uh, in, give them free seminary training. One of the places that he just fell in love with is Athens, Greece. And he said that there's just something so unique 
about this region because all the refugees are like filing in through there, right? And so you have all these people who don't know Jesus that are coming through there and they're meeting Jesus for the first time because of the missionaries that are sent there and they're going all around the world. And he tells the story in uh, the documentary about this guy named Musad. This guy named Musad who uh, was fleeing Afghanistan and he, he found himself in, in Athens um, after, after traveling. Uh, it's like they, they were being hunted down on their way out of Afghanistan. Uh, they had to board a boat, uh, and, and, and the boat was, like, super sketchy, right? Like, like max capacity 20, and there's, like, 50 people on that boat, right? And so he has a... It's him and his wife and their two little kids. Like their smallest kid like almost died like on the boat because the, the waters were so choppy and it was just so just out of control. But they eventually make their way into Athens. And he grew up in a Muslim home. And so he's a professing Muslim. And he's, he's there in Athens. And he just gets exposed. I won't share the whole story with you because you guys should just watch it. It's actually on Amazon Prime. Jesus in Athens, Athens, you should uh, look it up this week. But he comes to faith in Christ in Athens. And he's so excited. He calls up his brother. And his brother responds, his brother, brother responds to him uh, saying, you're a Christian now? You're getting baptized? Brother, you have brought shame upon our family. Don't talk to me again. And it just hangs up on him. His wife that he traveled to Athens with uh, said, she's, like she was interviewed on the documentary and, and she's, she said to, to him, she said to Masad, you know what? Like we went through so much to get here to find safety for our family. We almost died. We got... We, got mur- we almost got murdered. We were getting chased and, and hunted down. But now you've ch- chosen to like forsake Allah and follow the, the God of Jesus Christ. And she says it would have been better if we just died at sea. She wanted nothing to do with him. But then in the midst of all this hatred he got, from his family. And he tells a story in the documentary. It's super moving. He, he just talks about the way that he just desired to serve his neighbors and serve his family. And his family started to notice like this real change in his life, this resilient hope in the midst of the worst of circumstances. Like they, they, lived, they lived pretty well in Afghanistan, but here like they had almost nothing in Athens. And in the midst of that, and the sickness and all the trials they were going through, he had this resilient hope. And eventually his wife came to faith. They, they have two daughters now that they raised up in the faith. One of their daughters leads worship with him in their church. They eventually moved back to Afghanistan. He led his brother to Christ. And now he runs this ministry to where they're basically like giving out Bibles in Afghanistan, uh, just serving others and spreading the gospel throughout Afghanistan. But man, I want you to imagine how different Musad's story would have been if in the, if in the midst of 
the mocking and the maligning and the persecution and the ridicule, if he was just like, man, is this worth it? Is this really worth it? Like my wife says it would have been better if we died than make it here to Athens. My brother says I brought great shame to the family. Like, is this really worth it? And imagine in that moment when tempted with sin, he chose sin. He chose to say it's not worth it and gave himself back to his old ways. Man, you see when the cross shapes our suffering, we find hope on the other side of it. Not just hope to save us from the suffering, but victory to where we can stand over it. And so let me invite you in light of these six verses to remember the victory of the cross and let that shape the way that you suffer. Remember the pool of temptation and how sin is fleeting, but our faith is forever. And remember the coming judgment and kingdom of God. Remember the justice of God in a way that gives you hope, that shapes your life with hope in what's to come. No one suffered more, was ridiculed more, was mocked more than our Lord Jesus. The Bible tells us that he endured that suffering because of the joy and the hope he saw on the other side. And for those of us who are in him, that same joy and that same hope can not only help us endure, but is ours today. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.